0: I invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Three weeks ago, I preached a sermon from this passage, and I want to return to this text again today. In this text, Jesus teaches a group of Pharisees. He was invited to lunch by these Pharisees, And so at this lunchtime table, they begin to have a discussion, and one blurts out that, hey, we're all going to be blessed because we're all going to eat bread in the kingdom of God. I mean, we're all card-carrying members of the kingdom of God, aren't we? The kingdom, or the kingdom feast particularly that was mentioned, is this end time age in which the Messiah would sit upon the throne and God's people would be there and things would be put right when justice would truly pervade over the entire planet. And this kingdom has been the hope of God's people through the ages. Well, as I said, during the lunch, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, believed that they had their ticket punched for that kingdom. They had a reservation. They were a shoe in They didn't question whether they would even have a seat at the table. They assumed it would happen. But Jesus set out to correct that assumption by telling them a parable, a story about who will be attending the kingdom banquet. His point was that it will not be them, those men sitting at the table that day that will be eating the bread in the kingdom of God, eating in that banquet, but it's going to be others who would attend. Those who would be outcasts, those who would, they would not assume would be there are actually the ones who will be. Those men sitting there at the table would not be in the kingdom because they had denied the invitation. Jesus came bearing the invitation, offering it to Israel, and they, as God's people, had rejected Jesus, and therefore they had rejected God's offer of salvation and access to the kingdom. In the parable, the master of the house, after getting the initial rejections of the invitations, he tells the servant to go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come into his house and to dine with him. This command by the master of the house to go out and to compel people to come in has been seen by Christians through the history of the church as an exhortation for the church. To evangelize those who are lost and don't know Christ. That we are to go out and compel people to come in to Christ. One such person who took it this way was the pastor and preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon lived and ministered in Victorian London in the latter half of the 19th century. He has since been dubbed, since his death, uh, the Prince of Preachers because of his profound ability to preach, his passion that came through in his preaching, and how prolific he was in both the sermons that he preached and the publications that he produced. He preached to thousands every week, and upon his death there in London, the city practically shut down Over 100,000 people saw him lay in state or attended one of his four funeral services. And the reason he was so popular in his day and that he is still read today is that he has a combined uh, two things together. One is a passion for Jesus Christ that comes through clearly. But secondly, there was a simplified clarity that is still evident when we read his writings today. Because you can read people from the 1800s today, and you can be lost in trying to understand what they're, what they're saying, and you read Spurgeon, and you feel like maybe a, maybe a grandfather. It's a little bit older English, slightly, but it is so relevant and speaks to us today. He spoke with clarity. And for that reason, this morning, I want to do something I've never done before, and that is preach another man's sermon. I want to preach an hist- old historic sermon, in this case, a sermon uh, preached by Charles Spurgeon on a verse in our, this passage in Luke 14, particularly in Luke 14, 23, in which is the command, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. This sermon was originally preached on Sunday morning, December 5th, 1858. At the time, Spurgeon was only 24 years old. I'm 36 for comparison. He was a young guy, I'd say. He's Taylor's age. Um, <laughs> only, and he was only four years into his ministry at New Park Street Chapel. But his popularity was so, such that they outgrew that church quickly. And they were now meeting at what was the music hall at the Royal Surrey Gardens. The venue, that music hall venue, could hold 12,000 people, and his audience that day was estimated anywhere between ten and 12,000, and he preached this sermon without amplification. I'm preaching this sermon today because it is a wonderful example of Spurgeon's preaching, his call to Christ, his impassioned preaching for Jesus Christ, and the call to sinners that salvation is available to all. And so I believe it's a wonderful example of evangelism for us, for us to see how we can call people to Christ with the gospel. And I pray that all here this morning would hear the words that were originally spoken over a 100 years ago, but to hear with fresh clarity. I've sought to pray this sermon into my own soul. And so even though I am speaking the words of Spurgeon, I pray that my own heart would come through as I seek to compel sinners to come to Christ. And so with that as introduction, let me now give you the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Coming from the verse in Luke 14, 23, compel them to come in. I feel such a compulsion to go out and obey this commandment this morning by compelling those to come in who are now loitering in the highways and hedges that I cannot wait for an introduction but must at once set about my business. Hear then, O you who are strangers to the truth as it is in Jesus, hear then the message that I have to bring to you. You have fallen, fallen in your father Adam. You have fallen also in yourselves by your daily sin and your constant iniquity. You have provoked the anger of the Most High. And as assuredly as you have sinned, so certainly must God punish you if you persevere in your iniquity." For the Lord is a God of justice and will by no means clear the guilty. But you, have you not heard? Has it not long been spoken in your ears that God in his infinite mercy has devised a way by which without any infringement upon his honor, he can have mercy upon you, the guilty and the undeserving? To you I speak. And my voice is to you, O sons of men, Jesus Christ, God, very God of very God, has descended from heaven and was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, begotten by the Holy Spirit. He was born by the Virgin Mary and lived in this world a life of exemplary holiness and of the deepest suffering until at last he gave himself up to die for our sins, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. And now the plan of salvation is simply declared to you. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. For you who have violated all the precepts of God and have disdained his mercy and dared his vengeance, there is yet mercy proclaimed. Yet, for yet whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now all that God asks of you and this he gives to you is that you will simply look at his bleeding, dying son and trust your souls in the hands of him whose name alone can save from death and hell. Is it not a marvelous thing that the proclamation of this gospel does not receive the unanimous consent of all people? One would think as soon as it was preached that whoever believes shall have eternal life that each of you casting away his sins and iniquities would lay hold on Jesus Christ and to look to his cross alone. But alas, such is the desperate evil of our nature. Such is the pernicious depravity of our character that this message is despised. The invitation to the gospel feast is rejected and there are many of you who are this day enemies of God. You are enemies of God by your wicked works, enemies of God who preaches Christ to you today, enemies of him who sent his son to give his life a ransom for many. Strange to say that it should be so. Yet nevertheless, it is the fact. And hence the necessity for the command of the text, compel them to come in. Children of God, you who have believed, I have little or nothing to say to you this morning. I am going straight to my business. I am going after those who will not come. Those who are in the byways and hedges and God going with me, it is my duty now to fulfill this command, compel them to come in. I give you two points. First, I must find you out. And secondly, I will go to work to compel you to come in. First, I must find you. If you read the verses that precede the text, you will find an amplification of this command. It says, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. Then afterwards, go out into the highways Bring in the vagrants and the thieves and into the hedges and bring in those that have no resting place for their heads and are lying under the hedges to rest. Bring them in also and compel them to come in. You see this morning, yes, I see you this morning, you who are first poor. I'm to compel you to come in. You are poor in circumstances, but this is no barrier to the kingdom of heaven. For God has not exempted from his grace the man who shivers in rags and he who is destitute of food. In fact, if there is any distinction made, the distinction is on your side and for your benefit. To you is the word of salvation sent, for the poor have the gospel preached to them. But I must specifically speak to you who are poor spiritually. You have no faith. You have no virtue, you have no good work, you have no grace. And what is worse than poverty, you have no hope. Ah, oh, my, my master has sent you a gracious invitation. Come and welcome to the marriage feast of his love. Whoever will, let him come and partake of the waters of life freely. Come, I must lay hold of you. Though you are defiled with foulest filth, and though you have nothing but rags upon your back, though your own righteousness has become as filthy rags, yet I must lay hold upon you and invite you first, and even compel you to come in. And now I see you again. You are not only poor, but you are crippled. There was a time when you thought you could work out your own salvation without God's help, when you could perform good works, attend to religious ceremonies, And get to heaven by yourselves, but now you are crippled. The sword of the law has cut off your hands, and now you can work no longer. You say with bitter sorrow, the best performance of my hands dares not appear before your throne. You have lost all power now to obey the law. You feel that when you wish to do good, evil is present with you. You are crippled. You have given up as a forlorn hope. All attempts to save yourself, because you are maimed and your arms are gone, but you are worse off than that. For if you could not work your way to heaven, yet you would walk your way along the road by faith, but you are crippled in the feet as well as in the hands. You feel that you cannot believe, that you cannot repent, that you cannot obey the stipulations of the gospel. You feel that you are utterly undone, powerless in every respect to do anything that can be pleasing to God. In fact, you are crying out, Oh, could I only believe, then all would be, all would easy be. I would, but cannot, Lord, relieve. My help must come from thee. I am also sent to you. Before you, I am to lift up the blood-stained banner of the cross. I am to preach this gospel to you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I am to cry to you. Whoever will, let him come and partake of the water of life freely. There is yet another class. You are limping. You are halting between two opinions. You are sometimes seriously inclined, and yet another times worldly gaiety calls out to you. What little progress you do make in religion is only a limp. You have a little strength, but that is so little that you make only painful progress. Ah, limping brother, to you also the word of the salvation is sent. Though you halt between two opinions, the master sends me to you with this message. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. Consider your ways, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel." Halt no longer, but decide for God and his truth. And yet I see another class, the blind. Yes, you who cannot see yourselves, who think of yourselves as being good when you are full of evil, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, darkness for light and light for darkness, to you I am sent. You blind souls who cannot see your lost estate, Who do not believe that sin is so exceedingly sinful as it is, and who will not be persuaded to think that God is a just and righteous God, to you I am sent. To you, too, who cannot see the Savior, who see no beauty in Him that you should desire Him, who see no excellence in virtue, no glories in religion, no happiness in serving God, no delight in being His children, to you also I am sent. Indeed, to whom am I not sent if I take my text? For it goes further than this. It not only gives a particular description so that each individual case may be met, but afterward it makes a general sweep and says, Go into the highways and hedges. Here we bring in all ranks and conditions of men. My Lord upon his horse in the highway, the woman trudging about her business, the thief waylaying the traveler. All these are on the highway, and they are to be compelled to come in. And they are away in the hedges. There lie some poor souls whose refuges of lies are swept away and who are seeking now to find some little shelter for their weary heads. To you also we are sent this morning. This is the universal command. Compel them to come in. Now I pause after having described the character, I pause to look at the Herculean labor that is before me. Well did Melanchthon say, old Adam was too strong for young Melanchthon, as well might a little child seek to compel a Samson, as I seek to lead a sinner to the cross of Christ. And yet my master sends me on this errand. Lo, I see the great mountain before me of human depravity and stolid indifference, but but by faith I cry, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. Does my master say, compel them to come in? Then though the sinner is like Samson and I am like a child, I shall lead him with a thread. If God says it, says to do it, if I attempt it in faith, it shall be done." and if with a groaning, struggling, and weeping heart I seek this day to compel sinners to come to Christ, the sweet compulsions of the Holy Spirit shall go with every word, and some indeed shall be compelled to come in. And now secondly, directly to the work. Unconverted, unreconciled, unregenerate men and women, I am to compel you to come in. Permit me, first of all, to accost you in the highways of sin and tell you my errand at once. The king of heaven this morning sends a gracious invitation to you. He says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Dear brother, it makes my heart rejoice to think that I should have such good news to tell you. And yet I confess my soul is heavy because I I see you do not think it is good news, but you turn away from it and do not give it due regard. Permit me to tell you what the king has done for you. He knew your guilt, he foresaw that you would ruin yourself. He knew that his justice would demand your blood. And in order that this difficulty might be escaped, that his justice might have its full due, and that you might be saved, Jesus Christ has died. Will you this moment glance at this picture? You see that man there on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood? You see this next. You see that miserable sufferer tied to a pillar and lashed with terrible scourges until the shoulder bones are seen like white islands in the midst of a sea of blood. And again, you see a third picture. It is the same man hanging on the cross with his hands extended and his feet nailed firmly, dying, groaning, bleeding. I thought the picture spoke and it said, it is finished now all this has jesus christ of nazareth done in order that god might consistently with his justice pardon sin and the message to you this morning is this believe on the lord jesus christ and you shall be saved that is trust him renounce your works, renounce your ways, and set your heart alone on this man who gave himself for sinners. Well, brother, I've told you the message, but what do you say about it? Do you turn away? You tell me it's nothing to you. You, you cannot listen to it, that you hear me, you will hear me by and by, and you will go your way this day and attend to your farm and merchandise. Stop, brother. I was told not merely to tell you and then go about my business. No. I am told to compel you to come in and permit me to say to you before I go any further that there is one thing I can say and to which God is my witness this morning. I am in earnest with you in my desire that you should comply with this command of God. You may despise your own salvation, but I do not despise it. You may go away and forget what you shall hear, but you... Will you please remember that the things I I say cost me many a groan before I came here to utter them? My inmost soul is speaking to you, my poor brother, when I beseech you by him who lives and was dead and is alive forevermore. Consider my master's message, which he bids me now to address to you. But do you spurn it? Do you still refuse it? Then I must change my tone for a minute. I will not merely tell you the message and invite you as with all earnestness and sincere affection. I will go further. Sinner, in God's name, I command you to repent and believe. Do you ask me from where my authority comes? I am an ambassador of heaven. My credentials, some of them secret and in my own heart and others of them open before you this day in the seals of my ministry, sitting and standing in this hall where God has given me many souls for Responsibility. As God, the ever- everlasting one, has given me a commission to preach his gospel, I command you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, not on my own authority, but on the authority of him who said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then annex this solemn sanction. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Reject my message and remember. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? An ambassador is not to stand below the man with whom he deals, for we stand higher. If the minister chooses to take his proper rank, girded with the omnipotence of God and anointed with his holy unction, he is to command men and speak with all authority, compelling them to come in. It says, Command, exhort, rebuke with all long suffering. But do you turn away and say you won't be commanded? then I will change my tone again. If that does not work, all other means shall be tried. My brother, I come to you with simple words and I exhort you to flee to Christ. Oh, my brother, do you know what a loving Christ he is? Let me tell you from my own soul what I know about him. I too once despised him. He knocked at the door of my heart and and I refused to open it. He came to me times without number, morning after morning and night after night. He checked me in my conscience and spoke to me by his spirit. And when at last the thunders of the law prevailed in my conscience, I thought that Christ was cruel and unkind. Oh, I can never forgive myself that I should have thought so poorly of him. But what a loving reception did I have when I went to him. I thought he would strike me but his hand was not clenched in anger, but opened wide in mercy. I thought surely that his eyes would dart lightning flashes of wrath upon me, but instead they were full of tears. He fell upon my neck and kissed me. He took off my rags and clothed me with his righteousness and caused my soul to sing aloud for joy. While in the house of my heart and in the house of his church, there was music and dancing, because his son, who he had he had been lost was found, and he who was dead was made alive. I exhort you then, look to Christ and to be enlightened. Sinner, you will never regret. I will be a bondsman for my master, that you will never regret it. You will have no side to go back to your state of condemnation. You will you shall go out of Egypt and shall go into the promised land and shall find it flowing with milk and honey. You shall find the trials of the Christian life heavy, but you will find grace will make them light. And as for the joys and delights of being a child of God, if I lie this day, you shall charge me with it in the days to come. If you will taste and see that the Lord is good, I am not afraid that you shall find that he is not only good, but better than human lips could ever describe. I do not know what arguments to use with you, I appeal to your own self-interests. Oh, my poor friend, would it not be better for you to be reconciled to the God of heaven than to be his enemy? What are you getting by opposing God? Are you the happier for being his enemy? Answer, pleasure seeker. Have you found the lights in the cup? Answer me, self-righteous man. Have you found rest in the sole of your foot in all your works? Oh, you who go about to establish your own righteousness, I urge you, let your conscience speak. Have you found it to be a happy path? Ah, my friend, why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. I exhort you by everything that is sacred and solemn, everything that is important and eternal, flee for your lives. Do not look behind you. Do not stay at all in the plain. Do not stop until you have proven and have found an interest in the blood of Jesus Christ, that blood which cleanses from all sin. Are you still cold and indifferent this morning? Will not the blind man permit me to lead him to the feast? Will not the crippled brother put his hand upon my shoulder and permit me to to assist him in the banquet? Will not the poor man allow me to walk side by side with him? Must I use some stronger words? Must I use some other compulsion to compel you to come in? Sinners, this one thing I'm resolved this morning. If you are not saved, then you shall be without excuse." You, from the gray-headed down to the tender age of childhood, if you this day do not lay hold on Christ, your blood shall be upon your own head. If there is power in man to bring his fellow man, as there is at the time when man is helped by the Holy Spirit, that power shall be exercised this morning. God helping me. Come, I am not to be put off by your rebuffs, If my exhortation fails, I must try something else. My brother, I now entreat you. I entreat you, stop and consider. Do you know what it is that you are rejecting this morning? You are rejecting Christ, your only savior. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. "'My brother, I cannot bear that you should do this, "'for I remember that what you are forgetting, "'that there is a day coming when you will need a Savior. "'It is not long before weary months shall have ended, "'and your strength begins to decline, "'and your pulse shall fail you, "'and your strength shall depart, "'and you and the grim monster death must face each other. "'What will you do in the swellings of Jordan "'without a Savior?' Deathbeds are stony things without the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an awful thing to die in any manner. He who has the best hope and the most triumphant faith finds that death is not a thing to laugh at. It is a terrible thing to pass from the seen to the unseen, from the mortal to the immortal, from time to eternity, and you will find it hard to go through the iron gates of death without the sweet wings of angels to conduct you to the portals of the skies." Mark my words. It will be hard, a hard thing to die without Christ. I cannot help thinking of you. I see you essentially committing suicide this morning and I picture myself standing beside your bedside hearing your cries and knowing that you are dying without hope. I cannot bear to bear to think that. I think I am standing by your coffin now and looking into your cold your clay cold face and saying this man despised christ and neglected a great salvation i think what bitter tears i shall weep then if i think that i have been unfaithful to you and how those eyes close fast in death and shall seem to chide me and say minister i attended the church but you were not in earnest with me you amused me you preached to me but you did not plead with me You did not know what Paul meant when he said, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I entreat you, let this message enter your heart for another reason. I picture myself standing at the judgment bar of God. As the Lord lives, the day of judgment is coming. Do you believe that? You are not a heathen. Your conscience would not permit you to doubt the scripture. Perhaps you may have pretended to do so, but you cannot. You feel that there must be a day when God shall judge the world in righteousness. And I see you standing in the midst of that throng, and the eye of God is fixed upon you. It seems to you that he is not looking anywhere else, but only upon you, and he summons you before him. And he reads your sins and he cries, Depart, you cursed, into everlasting fire in hell. My hearer, I cannot bear to think of you in that position. It seems as if every hair on my head must stand on end to think of any hearer of mine being damned. Will you picture yourself in that position? The word has gone forth Depart, you cursed. Do you see the pit as it is opens to swallow you up? Do you listen to the shrieks and the yells of those who have preceded you to the eternal lake of torment? Instead of picturing the scene, I turn, you, turn to you with the words of the inspired prophet and I say, Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Oh, my brother, I cannot let you dismiss religion like this. No, I think of what it is to come after death. I should be destitute of all humanity if I should see a person about to poison himself and did not dash away the cup. Or if I saw a man about to jump from the London Bridge and if I did not assist in preventing him from doing so. And I would be worse than a fiend if I did not now with all love and kindness and earnestness beseech you to lay hold of eternal life. Not to labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now some hyper-Calvinist would tell me that I'm wrong in doing so and I can't help it. I must do it. Since I must stand before my judge at last, I feel that I shall... Not make full proof of my ministry unless I treat, entreat with many tears that you would be saved, that you would look to Christ and receive his glorious salvation. But does this not avail? Are all our entreaties lost upon you? Do you turn a deaf ear this morning? Then I change my tone yet again. Sinner, I have pleaded with you as a man pleads with his friend. And for the life of me, I could not speak more earnestly this morning than I do speak concerning your life. I felt earnest about my own soul, but not a whit more do I than I do about the souls of my congregation this morning. And therefore, if you ignore these entreaties, I have something else. I must threaten you. You shall not always have warnings such as these. A day is coming when hushed shall be the voice of every gospel minister at least for you, and for your ear shall be cold in death. It shall not be any more threatening. It shall be the fulfillment of the threatening. There shall be no promise, no proclamations of pardon and of mercy, no peace-speaking blood, but you shall be in the land where the Sabbath is all swallowed up in everlasting nights of misery and where the preaching of the gospel is forbidden because it would be pointless. I charge you then, listen to the voice that now addresses your conscience. For if not, God shall speak to you in his wrath and say to you in his hot displeasure, I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no man regarded. Therefore, I will mock at your calamity. I will laugh when your fear comes. I have called and you refused to listen. I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. Sinner, I threaten you again. Remember, it is only a short time that you may have to hear these warnings. You imagine that your life will be long, but do you know how short it is? Have you ever tried to think now how frail you are? Did you ever see a body when it has been cut in pieces by the atomist? Do you ever see such a marvelous thing as the human frame? Strange, a harp of a thousand strings should keep in tune so long. Let only one of those cords be twisted. Let only a mouthful of food go in the wrong direction, and you may die. The slightest chance, as we have it, may send you swiftly to death when God wills it. Strong men have been killed by the smallest and slightest accident, and so may you. In the chapel, in the house of God, men have dropped down dead. How often do we hear of men falling in our streets, rolling out of time into eternity by some sudden stroke? And are you sure that your heart is quite sound? Is the blood circulating with all accuracy? Are you quite sure of that? And if it is so, how long shall it be? Oh, perhaps there are some of you here who shall never see Christmas Day. It may be the mandate that has gone forth already. Set your house in order for you shall die and not live. Out of this vast congregation, I might with accuracy tell how many will be dead in a year, but it is certain that all of us shall never meet together again in any one assembly. Some of this vast crowd, perhaps some two or three shall depart before the new year shall be ushered in. I remind you then, my brother, that either the gate of salvation may be shut or else you may be left outside the gate of mercy. Come then and let the threatening have power on you. I do not threaten because I wish to alarm you for no good reason, but in hopes that a brother's threatening may drive you to the place where God has prepared the feast of the gospel. And now must I turn hopelessly away? Have I exhausted all that I can say? No, I will come to you again. Tell me, what is it, my brother, that keeps you from Christ? I hear one say, oh, sir, it is because I feel myself too guilty. That cannot be, my friend. That cannot be. For Paul has said, I am the chief of sinners. Friend, you are not. The chief of sinners has already died and went to heaven many years ago, and his name was Saul of Tarsus, and afterwards became Paul the Apostle. He was the chief of sinners, and I know he spoke the truth. No, but you say, I I am too vile, too wicked. You cannot be more vile than the chief of sinners. You must at least be second worst sinner. Even supposing you are the worst sinner now alive, you are still the second worst, for he was the chief. But suppose you are the worst Is not the very reason, is not that the very reason you should come to Christ? The sicker a man is, the more reason he has to go to the hospital or to a physician. The poorer you are, the more reason you should accept the charity of another. Now Christ does not want any merits of yours. He gives freely. The worse you are, the more welcome you are. Let me ask you a question. Do you think you will ever get better by staying away from Christ? If so, you know very little as yet the way of salvation at all. No, sir, the longer you stay, the worse you will grow. Your hope will grow weaker. Your despair becomes stronger. The nail with which Satan has fastened you down will become more firmly embedded and you will be less hopeful than ever. Come, I beseech you, remember that there is nothing to be gained by delay, but by delay everything may be lost. But, cries another, I feel I cannot believe. No, my friend, and you never will believe if you first look to your believing. Remember, I am not to come to invite you to faith, but I am to come to invite you to Christ. But you say, what is the difference? Why just this? If you first of all say, I want to believe a thing, you never never do it. But your first inquiry must be this. What is this thing that I am to believe? Then faith will come as the consequence of that search. Our first business has nothing to do with faith, but with Christ. Come, I beseech you on Calvary's Mount and see the cross. Behold the Son of God, who He who made the heavens and the earth, dying for your sins. Look at Him. Is there not power in Him to save Look at his face, so full of pity. Is there not love in his heart to prove him willing to save? Surely, sinner, the sight of Christ will help you to believe. Do not believe first and then go to Christ, or else your faith will be a worthless thing. But go to Christ without any faith and cast yourself upon him, sink or swim. But I hear another cry. Oh, sir, you do not know how often I have been invited and how long I have rejected the Lord. I do not know, and I do not want to know. All I know is that my master has sent me to compel you to come in, so come along now. You may have rejected a thousand invitations. Do not make this the thousandth and one. You have been up to the house of God, and you have, have only been gospel-hardened. Why do I not see a tear in your eye? Come, my brother, do not be hardened by this morning's sermon. Oh, Spirit of the living God, come and melt this heart, for it has never been melted, and compel him to come in. I cannot let go on such an idle excuse as that. If you have lived so many years slighting Christ, there are so many reasons why you should not slight him now. But I did, I hear you whisper that this is not a convenient time, then what must I say to you? When will that convenient time come? Shall it come when you are in hell? Will that time be convenient? Shall it come when you're on your deathbed and the death rattles in your throat? Shall it come then? Or when the burning sweat is scalding your brow and then again when the cold, clammy sweat is there, shall those be convenient times? When pains are racking you and you are on the borders of the tomb, no, sir, this morning is the convenient time. May God make it so. Remember, I have no authority to ask you to come to Christ tomorrow. The master has given you no invitation to come to him next Tuesday. The invitation is today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion where the spirit says today, come now and let us reason together. Why should you put it off? It, this may be the last warning you shall ever have Put it off and you may never weep again in chapel. You may never have so earnest a sermon addressed to you. You may not be pleaded with as I would plead with you now. You may go away and God may say, he is given to idols, leave them alone. He shall throw the reins upon your neck and then note your course is certain, but it is certain damnation and swift destruction. And now again, is it all in vain? Will you not now come to Christ? Then what more can I do? I have only one more method and I shall try that. I can be permitted to weep for you. I can be allowed to pray for you. You shall scorn the address if you like. You shall laugh at the preacher. You shall call him a fanatic if you will. He will not chide with you. He will bring no accusation against you to the great judge. Your offense, as far as he is concerned, is forgiven before it is committed. But you will remember that the message you're rejecting this morning is a message from one who loves you. And it was given to you also by the lips of one who loves you. You will remember that you may sell your soul to the devil, that you may listlessly think it a matter of no importance, but there lives at least one who is earnest about your soul and who, one who before he came here wrestled with God for the strength to preach to you. And who, when he has gone from this place, will not forget his hearers this morning. I say again, when words fail us, we can give tears. For words and tears are the arms with which gospel ministers can compel people to come in. You do not know, and I suppose you could not believe, how anxious a man whom God has called to ministry feels about his congregation, and especially about some of them. I heard only the other day of a young man Who attended here a long time and his father's hope was that he would be brought to Christ he became acquainted however with an unbeliever and now he neglects his business and lives in a daily course of sin I saw his father's poor sorrowful face I did not ask him to tell me the story himself for I felt it was stirring up trouble and opening a sore I fear sometimes that a good man's gray hairs may be brought with sorrow to the grave young men you do not pray for yourselves, but your mothers wrestle for you. You will not think of your own souls, but your father's anxiety is exercised for you. I have been at prayer meetings when I have heard children of God pray there, and they could not have prayed with more earnestness and more intensity of anguish if each of them had been seeking their own soul salvation. And is it not strange that we should be ready to move heaven and earth for your salvation, and that still you should have no thought for yourselves, no regard for eternal things? Now, I turn for one moment to some here. There are some of you here who are members of Christian churches, who make a profession of religion, but unless I am mistaken about you, and I shall be happy if I am, your profession is a lie. You do not live up to your profession you dishonor it. You can live in the perpetual practice of absence from God's house, if not in sins that are worse than that. Now I ask such of you who do not adorn the doctrine of God, your Savior, do you imagine that you can call me your pastor and yet that my soul cannot tremble over you and in secret weep for you? Again, I say it may be of very little concern to you how you defile the garments of your Christianity, but it is a great concern to God's hidden ones who sigh and cry and groan for the iniquities of the professors of Zion. Now, does anything else remain for the minister besides weeping and prayer? Yes, there is one more thing. God has given to his servants not the power of regeneration, but he has given them something close to it. It is impossible for any man to regenerate his neighbor. And yet, how are men born of God? Does not the apostle say of such a one that he was begotten by him in his bonds? Now the minister has a power given to him from God to be considered both the father and the mother of those born to God. For the apostle said he travailed in birth for souls until Christ was formed in them. What can we do then? We can now appeal to the spirit. I know I have preached the gospel and I've preached it earnestly. I challenge my master to honor his own promise. He said it shall not return to him void and it shall not. It is in his hands, not mine. I cannot compel you, but you, O Spirit of God, who has the key of the heart, you can compel. Did you ever notice that last, that chapter of Revelation where it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock? A few verses before, the same person is described as he who has the key of David. So that if knocking will not prevail, he already has the key and can come in. Now, if the knocking of an earnest minister does not prevail with you this morning, there still remains the secret opening of the heart by the Spirit so that you shall be compelled. I thought it my duty to labor with you as though I must do it. Now, I throw it into my master's hands. It cannot be his will that we should travail in birth and yet not bring forth spiritual children. It is with him. He is the master of the heart and the day shall declare it that some of you constrained by sovereign grace have become the willing captives of the all-conquering Jesus and have bowed your hearts to him through the sermon this morning. May God let it be so. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we... Pray this morning that you indeed would work in the hearts of all those who are here this morning, that those who have not bowed the knee to Christ would not wait another day, that they would see that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn to Christ. They do not know what tomorrow brings. And so, Lord, may you mercifully call them, draw them to yourself. May they see your grace and your love and your mercy that was put on display before all the world, before all time at the cross. And may they come to Christ. Oh, Father, we recognize that we cannot regenerate any heart, we cannot change any minds, but you can. You are the all powerful one, and you are the gracious one that has drawn sinners into salvation. And we pray that you would do that this morning. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.